Ja, yeah, warum? the last 134 days 134 days four and a, it's the four and a half months to you and me russ why are you showing the last time that you took a shower let me ask you one question 134 days four and a half months what do you have to say for yourself i have to say it's good to be back with you oh we're just gonna play this cool yeah let's play it cool yeah man Totally. Well, after you decided. No, come to, on. Uh, Four and a half months. Let's, you know, what's, what have you been up to? You know, what, um, give, give the people what they want. I think you said it Where best with, wait, because Nubs is too busy. By the way, I'm thoroughly enjoying a uh, Tove's top five. I think it's, I think it's a great spinoff. Well, really? Yeah. I listen to it. Yes. yes. You do? I do. I enjoy it. I enjoy it very much. I think you're doing a great Are job. you sure you listen to it? Yeah. Oh, jeez. Like, are you sure? Did you actually prepare Tove's top five trivia? Because <laughs> if so, that would be incredible. All right. Since you brought it up. And you claim... That you've been listening. By, by the way, hands up. Nothing. No, I want full eye contact. What would I look up? <laughs> Because you claim that you kept up in the during our hiatus with Tove's Top 5. I'm going to see if that's legit or not as we play Tove's Top 5 Trivia for Nubs Who Disappeared for Four and a Half Months. Welcome back, Dobbs. Yeah. You know, it, 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 in typical Two Twins in an Album fashion, I start an episode and somehow now we are at you leading. You know, I, I, I wasn't, <laughs> I mean, I kind of, I, obviously I kind of had this as a thought and, and my thought was, you know, maybe if the episode gets onward, you know, we'll do it. Or if you bring up up Toast Top Five and make the claim that you've you know tuned in, then I was like, well, let's um, let's have him put his money where his mouth is, you know? Let's find out. So we're gonna find out. So yes, I have completely. I mean, hijacked. this is pure hijacking, a hundred percent. And listen, when you you disappear for four and a half months, be prepared to get your episode hijacked. But I do promise, Nub, this will be the only hi, uh, hijacked, hijack hijinks of the entire episode. I, I do promise that, okay? Well, actually, no. Yeah, I do. Doubtful. No, yeah, we're doubtful. Good. We're good. We're good. All right. Hands, eyes, and let's see. Let's see. If you've actually been tuning in, I got, I think I have 10, maybe 11, I don't know. But 
I think a good score on these would be I'll be flattered and pleased if you get six. They're not like super. This is not meant to um, trap you either. I'm not this. You know, we're not we're not <laughs> trying to we're not trying to. Uh, it's not a gotcha game. I hope I get you know? one. How about that? Can I just <laughs> feel good about getting one of these? Cards? All right. Here we go. I love the show. Well, I, you know, I, just, I didn't study the, for the quiz, obviously. This is the quickest we've ever done a game. But, but you brought it up, so, you know. All right. I'll give you a couple easy ones. All right. Are you ready? Uh, yeah. Okay. Recite word for word every lyric to the Toast Top 5 theme song. Toast top five because ten is too many. Mm -hmm. Toast top five because nubs is too busy, which is mm -hmm. yep. B's favorite line in the song. <laughs> Toast top five. Yeah. The yeah is amazing. Okay, you missed a whole verse. That's incorrect. What? It I'm, goes I'm right so far. Because ten is too many. Tove's top five because Nubs is too busy. Tove's top five. I don't know what he's up to, but he's clearly busy. So let's talk about some tunes because it's Tove's top five. And then I go, yeah, for no reason. I, I think I did very well on that answer. Very well. Still over one. But I like that you at least. And by the way, what song is that parodying? Guns and Roses. Pretty, uh, pretty, da, 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 um, you're close enough. Pretty tied up. You're close. Enough. Yeah. Pretty tied up. Actually, we went inside GNR cover band a, a couple weeks ago and, and I sent you that they, they played pretty tied up and I, uh, I sent it to you. Yeah. I went well, and saw GNR, the real band since our last podcast in Copenhagen, Denmark, and they did not play pretty tied up. Well, we'll get to all your escapades, but you're all for one with what we're dealing with at the moment, all right? All right, here we go. How many questions are there again? We have a lot to talk about with this with tonight's album, so all right, here we go. Don't don't try to don't try to dilute my game here, all right? I spent like 4 minutes on this, okay? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Question 2. What was KL the KLF's final moment of triumph? prior to the official end of their career. When they went on the t when they went on TV and hijacked the the award show. There was something bigger than that. I don't know. I don't know. No, I don't know. Mm, someone didn't listen to the KLF episode. It's pretty long. <laughs> they burnt a million pounds sterling to a crisp. Oh, okay. The equivalent of three and a half million US dollars today. They burnt it. And that's what really made them infamous, even more so than their other hijinks. So, I mean, you're, you were. A little bit correct. They did go on the Brit Awards with fake machine guns and they shot the crowd and then they announced that they had left the music industry. But the real 
uh, epilogue of their career was burning a million pounds. All right. Which, you know, you could have gotten from any minor study of the KLF. So, you know, with inflation, that's uh, that's like three five million now. Three and a half million today. Yes. All right. You're over two. Okay. Question three. Name the bands featured on Toast Top 5. I think there are eight episodes. That were also done on the big podcast, as I call it. Two twins in an album. Okay. Uh, let's see. I don't, not that many. Um... Did we do Smashing Pumpkins? No, we were we were going to do Melancholy. That's on the list. Big old two-parter. We didn't. We never did Steely Dan. That's on my list. We've always wanted to do Pretzel Logic. Um, Prince. We didn't. We know we haven't done a Prince album. Uh, who else did you do? Madonna which I liked I thought that was cool that you chose Madonna that's a great top five yeah I mean yeah. if we did a Madonna album what would you want to do like Ray well, of Light probably? True Blue was the, the album in that episode that I think there were three songs off of it now not to say that's the right one to do I, maybe Erotica you know there was so much around that with the sex yeah. book and all that what a, yeah. what a what a prevert by the way by the way i kicked off you know the two pervs right out of the gate with prince and uh, madonna you know? <laughs> yeah that's right just a whole couple of sexed up you know people yeah there, you know i you know i i actually think that each time you've posted one i've thought oh we haven't we haven't done that artist yet so you want the answer I'm going to say zero. It's none. Okay. Yeah. Good job. That you, that was, that was legit. You earned that one. Thanks. Nice job. All right. You're one for three. Question four. There are four artists. By the way, I just want to say part of that is that I think you're doing a good job of choosing to the conversation we just had. You're choosing a lot of artists that never had a great album. Well, that's, that's like yeah, Queen. Right. Right. Like what Queen Perfect album? Perfect top five. Yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. Prince exactly. is a good example. Yeah. I mean, we'll talk about it with tonight's album. Oh. That some people declare something a classic, maybe without ever listening to it. Yeah. And right. I think Prince albums are like that. Like, Side yeah. of the Times is a good example. People just say, oh, it's a classic, great yeah, double album. Kind of double album. Listen to it. <laughs> like, yeah. really? Yeah. Purple yeah, yeah. Rain is a good example. Purple Rain's got some garbage on junk. it. Junk. Yeah. Um, well, even Gold Experience is loaded with junk. And, and it's... Right. You know. Special Pumpkins and Steely Dan would be exceptions to that. But outside of that, I think you're picking a lot of... Madonna's a great example. Yeah. All is right. Is that a tattoo on your left arm, by the way? Yeah. Do you like it? I do. Yeah. That's one, of those, that's one of those modern hip. Oh, wait, is that Papa? That's Papa uh, Emeritus from Ghost, isn't it? Looks no, like, but. Oh, I can't see it so good. That If, if it even looks like, like that, then it's even cooler. 
ghost man they're great but we'll talk about your ghost thing, did you but. get a, is that a real tattoo did you get one of no it, it's a it's fake we we went to oh. the uh fair this last weekend and they were doing fake tattoos oh okay but but i think it doesn't look terrible i mean I'm, i don't know it's just, i've wanted a real one forever and i'm just too big of a wimp you know and since you don't shower much because you said it's been 134 days yeah you still have your fake tattoo mm. yeah these do stay on for like a week which is kind of cool all right anyway question four how many more of these are there there have been four artists featured with midwest roots who were they where are they from Prince is from Minneapolis. Correct. Smashing Pumpkins are from Chicago. Correct. Madonna's from Michigan. Correct. And Steely Dan. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. There's East Coast as it gets. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Um, Angels and Airways, right? Yes. Yeah. You got yeah. one. They're so Midwest. Yeah. Ultimate East Coast and one ultimate Southern California, you know? So there's one more Midwest that I'm missing? Yep. Don't be looking at the episode list. Now. I'm not. What is there to look at? Queen is not from the Midwest. No, they're not actually. No. Um, That's fair. Kalof is not from the Midwest. Correct. I mean, maybe the Midwest of Scotland. Of uh, yeah. I'll I'm give you a hint. It's okay. the state you went to college. Who did you do from Ohio? Uh, Steely Dan, Smashing Pumpkins, Madonna, KLF. Did I? I probably already said them once. I'll give you a hint. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, punch your balls off. Oh, Nine Inch Nails. That's right. Trent yeah, Cleveland. Florida. Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay. All right. I mean, you did okay, but you know. Okay. All right. All right, a couple more. Name the only band that Tove featured that was formed after the year 2000. Angels and Airwaves. That's correct. Just set up it. That's okay. Um, all right, I will do two more. Then we'll just we'll just call it a day. Tove during album worth mentioning, which is kind of a little segment during the Tove Top Five episodes. In one episode, Tove mentioned a downer album. That was a disappointment. He said the album has a great drummer, but otherwise proved that the band might be, quote, running out of plays to run and seems to be, quote, wobbling. It was a great description and you couldn't be more right. And it's the new Queens of the Stone Age. Correct. All right. Okay. I listen. I'm cooking with a little gas. All right, here's your last one. By the way, they have lost it. Oh, dude, 100%. Right? I mean, it's so stale. It's so stale. It's so flat. It's so non-creative. You know, it's just sludge for sludge sake. And the word, the word play on words. Yeah, that, all the that, that right there is. Yeah, I agree. I mean. Yeah. All of a sudden they're Fallout Boy. Yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. All right, last one. Ready? Name one KLF song. 
And name one KLF song? Name one KLF song. Uh, White Room. That's well, That's okay, hold on. The, the, the main song is KLF. Uh-huh, uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. That's one of their hits, yes. Um, What's the title of it, though? It's... I mean, the, the the point of the episode, in a way, was that the whole band's career revolved around five songs. Name one. Yeah. I can see you didn't rush to download the KLF catalog after that. Episode. I don't. Li- I, I don't. I don't like their music. Well, it's not. It's not about their music. That's the whole point. It's not about their music. It's about. Well, I love their story. The, I, the documentary piece. was fantastic. Yeah, the I art just, piece. Yeah, correct. But but like, it's not. Right, something you can't name else. one. What is that one called? Um, yeah, the album is the is the, the white, white room was the album. Yes. Yeah. All right. Uh-huh, it's, uh-huh, it's a uh-huh, it's a little uh-huh. tough if you're not dug into the story. But you got what time is love? Last train to Trans Central, three a.m. Eternal, justified and ancient, and then the Time Lords was Doctor in the TARDIS, which was the Doctor Who, Doctor Who, Doctor song. You know. Anyway, cool. <laughs> I, we, here's the thing about them, though. I that that always kind of uh, you did a pretty good job, all in all. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. That I mean, confuses me. They have so many remixes. Like well, I don't even know what the original album versions are like. That was the everything's was, a remix. That's the other point is that the originals, at least the three of them, were club classics. Like anyone who's into like ambient trance, all that stuff. Actually, the KLF is not a joke to them. They're like, those three songs are classics. Like if you talk to big brother, big brother, Scotty, he'd be like, those are, those are like, those are go-tos, you know, if you're DJing and whatnot. So the kind of like whole trick to the thing was they remix their own songs. You know, they almost like covered their own songs in the form of remix. And those are the ones that became radio hits because they radioized them, you know? Yeah. With the rappers and the feet and the chick voices. And I mean, you know. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, we could talk more about them another time for sure, but <laughs> it's hard to not think of them as that like Euro trash thing that was happening total total yard with the ned's atomic dustbin and the inspiral carpets and yeah all that shit it just yeah it all just sounds so it's just it's just shit right well the only difference is they weren't serious like right well they were serious about what they wanted to say just musically they weren't serious i don't think any part of their music was serious i mean no no no. just their message their whole their political stance was well the statement very extremely serious yes yes you know i mean but you know i mean they burnt a million pounds you know to 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 prove their their point i mean that that certainly was serious but there but yeah musically it was it was garbage and they knew it and that was the point i mean just listen to doctor and the tardis and then figure that that song went number one in the uk They, they went on top of the pops and performed that song you know, I mean, it's just, you know, it's mockery. It's brilliant. Anyway, you get me going on that. I'll talk for another two hours about the KLF. Who wants that? You're, you're definitely, uh, those who don't know T well, you know, you, you have a tendency to dive into a topic when you get really fascinated by it. Oh, that's weird. Cause I say yeah. that right at the beginning of the episode, how I, yeah. I don't have an an addictive personality, but I have an obsessive personality. 
Yeah, particularly with a historical thing that you find to be maybe even a little disturbing. I think this that's so always funny. been... Go back and listen to the first 60 seconds of the episode. I say exactly what you just said. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah so for, sure. for sure. Yeah, when I get dug in on a story like that, forget it. Like right now, I'll tell you, and, and you know, I want to hear about what you've been not just listening to lately, but watching and all that. I, I watched 2001 A Space Odyssey for the first time in like, I don't know, probably like 10 years, start to finish. And now that's my thing. Like, I want to know everything about that movie, how it was made and, you know, Kubrick's approach and all the interpretations. Like, that's that's my yeah. thing. You know, what's funny about that is that I watched that twice during my European adventure. Did you? Uh, earlier this summer. Yeah, I watched it on the way to Amsterdam and on the way back to Detroit from That's so weird because we we didn't even talk about that. No, no we didn't. Uh but I I yeah. I tend to watch that movie once a year. Yeah. And I review right exact same as you. I review the actual events of the space sequences to 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 remind myself of some of the interpretations, but I like to come with my own interpretation, right? So Yeah. But, but you have to I, there's something about well, What that is song. yours? What's yours? on the ending. So I, I I do believe that David Bowman turns into the star child. Okay. Like I, I've gotten that. He I, becomes the star child or yes. he's reincarnating as a star child. He becomes the star child when he right. enters the monolith. And then right. that's, yeah, that's what he becomes. And it signifies that the monolith leads to rebirth. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely my interpretation. But the scene that, that the star child scene is, is, so powerful and so classic, of course. But the scene that gets me every time yeah. is when Frank Poole, you know, goes floating. Into, when the monolith pulls Frank Poole away from the repair he's trying to make. Yeah. And he just goes floating into space. Yeah. I think yeah. it's more interesting what happens in 2010. Well, that's, the monolith doesn't pull him away. The, the um, Hal, Hal pulls him away. You know, Hal kills him. Well, right. Well, like, yes, yeah, yes, exactly. I mean, hell essentially murders him. Yeah, yes. that was all hell, <laughs> right? But Crazy. I, I the feel like appears, but yeah, but yeah. there's a lot of interpretations about the relationship between the monolith and Frank Poole because Frank Poole gets released into space. And if you watch 2010, the year we made contact, mm -hmm. the sequel, that's really which is an excellent film too. By the way, that dives yeah. further into okay. The whole story. I recommend that. for anybody who wants to see that follow up to watch yeah. 2010. The yeah. part that kills me, it's it's you know, it's maybe a little bit uh in vogue on on this, but is when he's shutting hell down, when he's pulling the I mean, that is just that is just incredible filmmaking when he's pulling all the different like you know, fuses or whatever to officially like kill Hal. David. And Hal's fighting David. for his yeah. you know. Yeah. Don't do this, David. And he starts singing uh Daisies. Yeah. Which then also makes you think of Revenge of the Nerds, which lightens the mood a little bit because it's so freaking intense and and powerful and kind of like sad that Daisies reminds you of Takashi riding the uh tricycle. Yeah. Daisy Daisy. Yeah. Jump down, jump, jing, tong, bing, you know, whatever. But how incredibly relevant is the whole Ugh. notion of how so relevant, you know, so friggin' relevant. And yeah, here we are. 
trying to figure out how not to let AI like be the destruction of all, <laughs> you know, right. All facets of mankind and, and Kubrick, you know, 40 years ago, whatever it was. I mean, just crazy stuff. 1984 crazy stuff. still matters and 2001 still matters. It and does. these things are supposed to be old, yeah, but they feel as relevant, you know, as ever. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? I'll tell you what else is crazy. Sting. <laughs> yeah. There's some really weird, interesting, heady stuff about him, isn't there? Yeah. But you know, what's interesting is that Including most people- tantric sex. Oh, you, know? you just took the words right out of my mouth. I mean, most <laughs> most people our age probably think just as much about him getting on. Was it ABC? I, mean, I forgot what network or show it was. Yeah. Was it Oprah? I can't remember. But anyway, Sting revealed to the world in shocking fashion that he and Trudy, his wife, would have, you know, sex for like 20 hours. Who I'm convinced, I'm convinced Trudy and Kurt Warner's wife are the same person. Yeah, they might be kind of similar. I feel like they're the same person. They both have short hair. Prove me wrong. Yeah, you might be right. Well, did Kurt Warner ever talk about tantric sex? No, but maybe he just, I mean, listen, during that, during that time period where Kurt was just, you know, throwing for like 450 a game, you know, the greatest show on turf interviewing him after every game. He's like, well, I'm just trying to deliver the football. You know, he's just got the half smile. You know that he was probably doing some tantric sex. That guy was on top of the world, you know, so I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah, we've talked about on, on previous editions that uh, we call Kurt Warnering. You That's know? right. Kurt Warner. Yeah. yeah. Like a heat check, you know, I, I actually think synchronicity is, is the ultimate heat check. <laughs> I, I agree with that for a band. And, and I think we need to talk about, the true most fascinating part of this album and this band, which is what comes out of people working together who absolutely despise one another. <laughs> yeah. I have one additional thing that I'm dying to talk about with this record. It's related to more of the mechanics of the album. Do you, do you know what I'm about to say? Um, the, the mechanics of the album. Yeah. The cover. No. I like the cover. You know, I like, you know, I'm a sucker for colorful covers. Yes. Dude, I, I can't wait to get your thoughts on this. This seat, the track sequencing of this album is such a fucking disaster. That that's the, yes. that's the one thing I want to make sure we <laughs> like, what were they thinking? It's a great call. That is a really great call. Well, we're going to dive into all sorts of themes and, uh, I don't know. Are we going to talk more about tantric sex or are we done with that? <laughs> yeah. Um, I I know nothing of the topic and many can attest to that. Um, I could probably talk about the opposite of, of the tantric approach. Yeah. Well, I, I think in, in, in line with tantric sex, this might end up an eight hour show if I don't keep it moving. So let's do this. Let's uh, take episode. What episode number are we at? By the oh, way, Oh God, great. Give us what, what days, how many days it's been, but uh, what number are we at? Um, do you want to guess? Yeah. I'm going to guess 90, Four. We're on to 85. Oh, okay. All right. Well, <laughs> let's take episode 85 round and round. Let's do it. T three albums that are spinning round for you. 
Well, I'm going to go quick because honestly, more interestingly than the albums that I have been like listening to is more so some of the stuff that I figure it's a good time for you to talk about a couple of the shows that you've been to because some of it's kind of interesting. So I'll just mention three kind of quick ones that the brand new public image limited end of world. I've given it two spins. It's good. It's not quite as dynamic as what they what he they've done in the past but um the lyrics are amazing it's it's like everything you'd expect and public image limited you know johnny's one of those guys i i do actually pay attention to what he says because i think that's half the thing is he's like trying to kind of make statements and i love his boldness these days about political correctness and all kinds of stuff and that's what you get here. It's it just great takes on things. So the music on this one almost to me is a little bit more of a vehicle than maybe it's been on some of the other. And I've really liked the last like three, four records. So it's not musically quite as strong as the others, but I do love the things he has to say. So if you haven't heard it, you know, give it a, uh, give it a listen for sure. Um, the second is by Seagar Rose. It's called Ada. It was pretty dark from my first listen and you know i kind of like when they're uh, you know a little bit more i guess light and fluffy you know like the parentheses record and talk and some of the things that you know i I don't really like when they get super super like minor musically intense this one's probably a little bit more in that direction but either way it's great to you know have you know something from those guys and then the third one man this Falco live, I think I mentioned it before, but I've listened to it all the time. Have you, did you give it a listen by any chance? I did when you had it on a round and round before. It's so good. It, it's called Live Forever, the complete show, Berlin 1986. And I'm just going to mention it again because I, I really have continued to listen to it. It's it's just so good. Falco, you know. So anyway, I'll turn it over to you and give us your round and round and also give us a little color on... Uh, during the last few months, you did take one trip in particular that had a great musical experience, which included your your little your little fans of of the band Ghost. Yeah, it's been quite a summer for shows. It really has. But you know, the highlight for sure, and earlier mentioned a trip to Europe, got the whole fam in the old family truckster and headed to uh, Copenhagen, Denmark. We went to Sweden. You may hate it now, honey, but wait till you drive it. Wait till you drive it. And then a few days in London. And during our travels, we went to the Copenhagen Festival uh, in Copenhagen. It just happened to be that when we planned this trip, it was in line with that. And the first night we were in Copenhagen was the last night of Copenhagen. And the headliners were Guns N' Roses and Ghost. On the same night. On the same night. That's and like not fair. <laughs> that's so just great. incredible. So great. And my two daughters, 10 and almost 12, are huge fans of Ghosts. And not like, not like cute, like, oh, like I'm a parent and I forced this on my, they legitimately love the band, know the music. It's super cool. It's like very, as they say, organic. It's not like some, you know, thing where the parent like forces the kid to like, like something. It's yeah. super cool. Thank you. Not at all. I appreciate you pointing that out. Cause no, not, not even in the least bit. So we saw ghost at Copenhagen. It was great. They did, you know, like an eight song festival set, but actually the more fun was last week. We went and saw him headline at pine knob with a Marth. That was, that was incredible. Yeah. They played a full awesome. set They're They're on their last leg. Finally of the Imperia tour. 
and just an incredible set, an amazing show. We just had an absolute blast. Earlier, in that they, just the other day, we were um, we were listening to satellite radio driving, and is it Mariana Mary on the Cross? Mary Mary on the Cross. Yeah. Okay, that song was on, and even like Mrs. Tote, we were just listening to it because I just left it. I'm like, leave this, and like two minutes into it, she's like, this is a really pretty song. You know, I was like, yeah, this is Ghost. But yeah, their uh, music is beautiful. I mean, yeah. Ghost is the closest thing to typo negative that we have right now. Yeah, that's a good call. Yeah. And and Tobias Forge, aka Papa Emeritus the third. I mean, he's just sort of a genius. His whole approach is genius level. So so yeah, so we did a couple of ghost shows and then I took my oldest, my oldest has become a big fan of Big Rack. And I finally got to see that band the night before we left oh, for yeah. Copenhagen. Her and I drove to Cleveland one in one night. And went and saw Big Rack at uh, the Hard Rock in Cleveland. How, how was that? How'd that go? They were absolutely fantastic. Nice. I mean, Ian Thornley is just again, you know, the the most underrated musician and the most underrated rock band. Yeah. Around today, we just had so much fun. That's awesome. So, and then we saw Barry last week. We did. Yeah, we went. And saw yeah, Barry. we went yeah. saw Barry. What did you think of Barry? Did you like that? Yeah, I loved it. It was great. I mean, he's eighty years old. You know, yeah, it was pretty still amazing. cooking, still, still doing his thing, still doing it. So first and foremost, I'll just say Ghost Phantom Mime is, is, you know, is certainly something that have been listening to regularly. This, this is the intermittent EP that he always does. There goes album, then EP, and the EP always has covers. There's two covers on Phantom Mime that are, are just sensational. One is Genesis, Jesus, He Knows Me. They do this, you know, kind of hard rock version of that. And the other, my favorite, is Ghost does a stunningly gorgeous version of We Don't Need Another Hero by Tina Turner that I just think is remarkable. Amazing. The other two albums on the turntable would be the new record from Avenged Sevenfold, Life is But a Dream. And I also was a little bit late to the party, but finally got into the newest album from Disturbed that is Divisive. Again, just another killer offering from Disturbed. So yeah, so T, let's dive into this album that really came from pure hatred. (laughs) And also I think, you know, a band who knew that this was it. The best way to do that is to start with those nerdy deets done dirt cheap. You want some dirty deets? Yeah. You want some dirty deets? Synchronicity, which I think is one of the coolest album titles of all time was released on June 17th of 1983. 1983 is an incredibly significant year in music. It's where many, many bands from the 80s sort of had their commercial high points. It's just look back at it. The length of the album is about 40 minutes. So again, we're getting into one of those single vinyl albums long before CDs allowed albums to be 60 and 80 minutes long. It's pretty nice and tight and short. The producer is a very familiar name, not only to the music world, but also to Two Twins in an album, a guy we've explored before, Hugh Pagum. Five singles from Synchronicity. And you hear these singles and you think, oh my God, it's the greatest album ever made. And those five singles are Every Breath You Take, Synchronicity 1 and Synchronicity 2, King of Pain, and Wrapped Around Your Finger. So five singles, all of which were quite successful. They recorded the album in separate rooms. All of that is true. It's not urban myth. 
Each of the three musicians, Sting, Andy Summers, and Stuart Copeland, all recorded in their own room. Some of that was technical. Most of it was that the band just truly did not want to be in the same room. Hugh Pagum refers to it as social reasons as to why the band (laughs) was in separate rooms. None of these cuts are performances top to bottom. In fact, they're spliced together more like an Aerosmith album was in the 90s, where you're almost looking at syllables being pieced together. Hugh Pagum and team had one hell of a task to try and take this album and and make it sound cohesive because it's not. It's a lot of different bits that are sort of sandwiched together to sound right. And boy, does it sound right. It's certainly one of the better sounding albums of the 1980s. It won a slew of awards. And in terms of sales, you know, in the United States alone, it sold 8 million copies. That's eight times platinum. It went platinum in the UK, France, Canada, New Zealand, and Italy as well. And then it was gold in a variety of other countries. It is the sixth and final studio album from The Police. Just going to say a little context on the awards piece. So if you're looking at the Grammy, so we give the Grammy back now. Um, Lost. The only reason it lost album of the year is because it got edged out by a little album called Thriller. Okay. And just for context, uh, the year before uh, the 1983 Grammys was the year that Toto 4 won album of the year over another just ridiculous field of possibilities. And then the following year after this was when Lionel Richie's Can't Slow Down won the Grammy for album of the year. So, I mean, it's like, this was just a crazy time for the industry that was just booming and busting at the seams, you know, commercially. And what a year in music where this thing can't seem to get the album of the year notoriety because it's going against one of the top three selling albums of all time in Michael Jackson's Thriller. By the way, do you know who, um, hosted the Grammy Awards during this run. He did it for like five straight years in the 80s. The Grammys? Yeah, yeah. Not Lionel Richie. That was the American Music Awards, right? Correct, correct. Uh, the same Grammys. guy, same guy. The three award shows I just mentioned had this same guy host. In the 80s? Yeah. I don't know um, if I would have guessed. I don't know if I would have gotten this. Give me some sort of hint. Um, A musician and a very like unexpected guy to be a host. I don't know. Was this it? was like probably just before we started watching the Grammys. Um, John Denver. John Denver. Really? Yeah, John Denver. Yeah, the guy's full of shit, you know? <laughs> yeah. Rockies. Um, yeah. Wow. Anyway, weird tidbit there. Yeah. Yeah, weird tidbit. You're right. It was a crazy time in the music business, but it was certainly a crazy time for the police. Why did they hate each other so much? Because all three of these gentlemen, very talented have egos the size of Antarctica. By this point, the band had gotten so popular and so successful, and Sting had become such a a star that he had literally sort of taken control of all aspects of the band, which often works if that's the case. But when you've got two other guys who kind of think they're the greatest thing in the history of the world as well, uh, you know... (laughs) Did Andy think he was the greatest or was it really just Stuart and Sting mostly butting heads and Andy was kind of in the middle? I think if you rank the three egos, Andy was third of three. I do. Okay. Still though, (laughs) I don't know that that's saying a whole lot. Yeah. I think he's, I think Andy Summers still thought he was, you know, pretty good. 
Yes. Uh, yeah. You know, the other two were just off the charts, ego-wise. Exactly. So, T, I want to hear about your experiences with the police, as we always do, as we get into our wondrous stories. Is your wondrous story about the police? Well, I kind of feel like, um, and again, I, I don't think their early stuff is that important. I mean, I think it's, you know, Regatta de Blanc and that stuff. I mean, it's it's fine, but I think really the two records, this one and the one that preceded it, are certainly the most interesting and the most compelling. And I feel like you're almost kind of a ghost in the machine guy or a synchronicity guy. And I'll just say from the get go that I'm a ghost in the machine guy. It's one of my favorite album covers of all time. I think it has one of the best opening songs of all time. Spirits of material world. I kind of feel like you're like into one or the other critically. And for me, it's the the previous, but before I even got into their records, cause that actually took a while. I, I believe this was the first CD box set that I ever purchased message in a box you know with the blue and the like police badge shiny silver police badge on the front it was this really neat box set and i listened to quite a bit of the police i mean it was you know that this box was fairly all-encompassing to your point it's not like they had a ton of studio output so you know in a four disc set you could capture most of it and there was live stuff and whatever else and it's definitely one of those early you know, when we got to the point where you, you're like going to the record store and buying your own stuff, it's an early piece where I was like, you know, I don't, I don't just want the CD. I want the box of these guys. And then Led Zeppelin followed thereafter. And of course, there are many other, you know, box sets that you can point to. I'm sure you've got plenty. But uh, yeah, this was the first one that I kind of recall uh, that being the case. Um, and the other thing is, uh, I think they're a terrible live band their songs don't have any feel. They don't have any groove. They're too fast. It's like Stewart's up there and Stuart Copeland's an incredible drummer. I respect him, but like doesn't understand the sort of like live output piece. And I talked about a little bit with smashing pumpkins on the toast top five, like just a crappy live band where you really don't get the essence of the songs. Now they didn't make it easy on themselves because the vocals on ghost in the machine and to an extent on synchronicity are pretty layered. You know, I mean, you've got some songs where there's like 30 different vocal tracks going on. That's hard to replicate. You've got synthesizer pieces and those things. And this was pretty, this is early eighties. This is kind of before a lot of that, that stuff could get figured out or be replicated in a way that was really good. So they, they didn't make it easy on themselves necessarily to be a good live band, but I was always so disappointed with, you know, like I, there's so many bands like this where you just queue up an old show. Just I never do that with the police. Cause I thought that they were just scrappy and too fast and too chaotic live. So anyway, those are my recollections. And uh, what are yours, buddy? I, I do remember that box set. And I remember you and I were kind of fascinated by their early punk stuff. Yeah. Your synchronicity. You're like, there's no way. I mean, there's no way this band started off as like a, Punky, I don't know if I call them straight punk, but they were punky, you know, yeah, and really raw. And I liked hearing those early demos and things like that. I, you know, we always reference our mom uh, on the podcast, and she had a pretty good set of 45s in her vinyl collection. And that was my first memory of the police. But really, I would say more recently, I I work in a uh, 
school district. And we recently had a principal retire who was with our district for a long time. He is the biggest police fan I've ever met. Really? Yeah. That's cool. And talking about the police with him, it's just like talking about anybody who just loves a band. He knows everything, you know? He, really? Yeah. And so... Um, Sting too, or just the police stuff? No, really just the police. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Which is very cool. He just retired. So, you know, hopefully it's time now to listen to Two Twins and an album. Yeah. He's great to talk to about the police because he really knows the band. And I think that there's the casual police fan who just kind of does every breath you take and sting stuff and can't figure out the difference between the two. And then there's like the hardcore police fan who like gets into the album cuts and more of the reggae stuff, like the less commercial. And he was in that category and it kind of re-inspired me to get back into him again. But I've never really gotten away from thinking that Ghost in the Machine is just this masterpiece. And I still think that. I still think there's a sound and a feel and a mood. So you're a Ghost in the Machine guy too. Yes. Yes, for sure. Nice. I just think Ghost in the Machine is just a really special, perfect 80s album. Yeah. They hated each other on that one, but not quite as much as they did on (laughs) Synchronicity. T, I think we should get into the tracks. There are five songs on here that you listen to and think, this might be one of the best songs ever made. And then there are seven others. And we'll get into those. As we drop the needle on the police's 1983 album, Synchronicity T, let's drop that needle. I tell you, it opens like a classic. That I can guarantee you. Because it opens with Synchronicity 1. This is a band firing on all cylinders from the start. And they're incorporating that, the programming, you know, the, the synthesizer stuff, the sequencing. They're on time. I don't know if it's a click track. I mean, if it was Hugh Bag- Pagum, it probably was. Probably. But they're on time. Well, and to get Stuart to stay, I, I would imagine that a click was needed. A, a click or they just play the damn thing in the background for him. Right, right, exactly. You know, but uh, the song has this unique mood to it. It's thin, but it's full. It's got some different textures. I think my favorite bit, though, is at the end when those tight horns come in. Yeah. I mean, well, and it's wasn't, the, it's wasn't this the guy that, that um, produced, uh, if you go all the way back to episode two, isn't this the guy that produced No Jacket or, uh, what what Phil Collins did we do? Was it well, no I mean, he produced every Phil Collins yeah. solo album for the first five or whatever. Like, so I had to get the horns in there, the Hugh horns. Oh, of course, know? of course, yeah. <laughs> but T, what do you think of Synchronicity One? I mean, it's a great starter. So, so uh, Spirits of the Material Awards probably my probably my favorite Police song. It's one of my favorite album openers, as I mentioned earlier, and it's such a clever song. I mean, this is a very clever band. They were not dummies. They knew how to 
play with time signatures and play with different elements that really squashed a lot of genres together and made it work. I mean, these, these guys were a very heady, clever band musically. And apparently lyrically as well, that the, the, the inspiration for this comes from this like 19th century author, like super, he's like a communist. And then he turned anti-communist is this whole, there's this whole thing behind the meaning of this record. So these guys weren't afraid to be a little bit heady and, but it really sort of morphed into a lot of musical creativity. That was really interesting. And, and yeah, I, I love the way this starts. I think there was a clear way to treat this uh, after track one wraps up and obviously they didn't do it, but uh, I don't know. Do you want to know what it is or, or should I wait? A synchronicity too? Yeah. Like, okay, right. <laughs> Why the don't they just, just all of a sudden as this is winding down the horns and everything, just have Stuart go pot. Doom, go to do to go to do like no break, just no fade out. Any of that garbage, just right into it. And let's go synchronicity one and synchronicity two right away. Like, did anybody not think of that? Did they think of it and they thought it was stupid? Did they think of it and they thought it was too predictable? But it's like, why didn't they do this? This is my first of many gripes on sequencing. Why not kick it right into two? I don't know. I think it's a good point. Um, Instead of the garbage that follows, you know, in particular. Let's get into the garbage. Let's dive into the trash. Let's dive into the trash. Track two, walking in your footsteps. Yeah, everyone in the 80s had to do their like tribal african rhythm thing right world music yeah yeah world music with lyrics apparently about dinosaurs it's terrible it's It's such a letdown after synchronicity one now i mean i'm all for the sort of let's not go with the templated sort of you know the high fidelity thing it's like you gotta start with track one and then you bring it up a notch and track and you gotta bring it down a notch for the like I mean, if you but want you to don't want to blow your mind, then you have to get down a notch. <laughs> right, exactly. So, like, okay, if you don't want to go for that, that's fine. But what a just stupid track two. Track three, fine. Four, cool. Boy, after you start the way you do, which is hot, you stick this as track two. It just doesn't make any sense to me. It's, it certainly does not make sense. And then comes track three. Oh, my God. Which makes me want to say... Oh my God. I mean, dude, even this would have been better as track two. I mean, and it's not good, but like, I don't know, whatever. This, this is the song to me that really sounds like three guys recording in three different rooms. I mean, they're just not on the same page. I really like what Andy's doing. Just it's, he's playing a different song and Sting's got this groove that you could tell. He was like, boys, let's do something with this. And Stuart's like bored. You can tell it's just, they they sound completely disengaged and completely divided. And you know why? Cause they were, I could, I could go on about how bad the track sequencing is on this record for hours. 
And it continues with track four. After saying, oh my God, then we say, mother. I was hoping it'd be the Danzig version, but it was Mother! Yeah. <laughs> I like about it is it's like a middle finger it's like a musical middle finger it's like <laughs> this is a major label hugely commercial album with such an experimental Andy Summers track on it so symbolically I'm gonna say okay I'm, I'm kind of respect it it's awful I mean it's it's unlistenable you know I mean the only fun part about this song is figuring out that it's in you know seven time and after that it's just stupid um yeah it's like avant-garde it's like bad weird yeah and and way too early to have a song like this i mean again well like, exactly to your point what are they doing i know what are they doing exactly all right continuing on track five nearing the end of side one miss gredenko Best of the non-hits, for sure. Uh, the Stuart Copeland pen song. So it has that little kind of a complex aspect to it. Stuart Copeland did a solo project mm-hmm. called Clark Kent. Yep, It's kind of an art rock, kind of proggy thing. And this reminds me. Do you like the Clark Kent it? stuff? Yeah, yeah. I like it a lot. Yeah, like it's kind I of like a lot of the solo stuff. I, Andy Summers did a couple al- albums with Robert Fripp that I really like. Clark Kent thing is cool. I think Stuart Copeland, he did some stuff with uh, was Adrian Ballou in the 2000s. That was kind of mm-hmm. cool. A, a project mm-hmm. with him. And I, I kind of like what all three of them did apart from each other in spots, you know, even Sting's solo career. I mean, there was some magnificent work and then some stuff that was just, you know, unlistenable. Yeah. But I, I do think this is the best of the non-hits, the album tracks, if you will. It's at least clever and interesting. But again, it, it's sort of directionless right i mean where what does it really do that's that's captivating yeah i mean i like that it's two minutes long that's your favorite thing about it that was supposed to be funny (laughs) yeah it was it was i like it (laughs) i like it that's my favorite part about it is it's two minutes long i mean it's not awful but i'm glad it's two minutes long your redemption at the end of side one comes with that sandwich and it didn't come right after synchronicity one but later on the side does come Synchronicity 2. It's really hard to turn that off. I think this is probably the police, probably their best song overall. It's an incredible composition. 
Uh, it winds through, you know, a great pre-chorus. I almost feel like this song created a genre. When you look at some of the early music by the Killers and you know some of the early kind of angular rock that was going on in the early 2000s, it just sounds a heck of a lot like the Police. And I think Synchronicity too is is a big part of that. There's actually a cover version of this song. There was a Police tribute album that they did in. Uh, an emo band called Branson did a cover of Synchronicity 2 that is mind blowing. Oh, nice. it, it really brings out the power of the song, the heaviness of the song. It, uh-huh. I, it, I just think so highly of Synchronicity 2. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. The, uh, the pre chorus you mentioned where the bass holds and he's just playing that octave note. And Andy's moving up and down the neck. I mean, you know, that's a great sound when done properly. There's a lot of different examples of that. You know, Worm by Yes, that type of an idea where everything's holding, but the guitar is kind of going up and down and playing unique kind of open chords. The ending is awesome with the million miles away. You know, they, they ended it in a very unexpected and interesting way. It's a, I mean, it's a phenomenal song, phenomenal song, everything about it. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, it sounded, it sounds disjointed in so many areas of the album. I think this is one of the lone examples where they really were on the same page. Everybody is doing their part on this song. It's a, it's a brilliant composition and really, really well executed. Yeah. Well said in every way, T. Well said. Side two, they certainly backloaded it with, with hits and none greater than to me, one of the more confusing hits that I've ever experienced as a music fan in my lifetime. This song was written in the middle of the night as so many hit songs seem to be wake sting woke up from a dream and kind of wrote this song out of nowhere. And I have a, a very simple assessment of this song. The one thing that is inarguable is the unbelievable success of the lead single and the, not only the police's biggest hit of all time, but one of the biggest hits of all time, not just of the 1980s, but of, the 20th century, and that is every breath you take. Nice. Of course, featuring Puff Daddy. Oh, I'm sorry. Is that the rocks? <laughs> that was well done. Nice. chose the tail end of the song which i think is a part that you like i my assessment of every breath you take is very simple i think it's how you can take terrible verses and an incredibly dull chorus and make it a phenomenal song simply by having one of the best bridges of all time because the bridge is the song this is the oh can't you see no this is the since since you're gone, I've been locked. Oh, since you. Oh, OK. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the middle the middle eight. Yeah. Just an incredible bridge. Yeah. That really is the cornerstone of a otherwise kind of boring song. I mean, really, mm-hmm. like what's interesting about every breath you take. But when it lifts into that bridge, oh, baby. Yeah, that is that is special. 
I think that's a good point. It it definitely um you sort of are trying to get there. And then yeah, I think the ending's strong. I mean, cuz it's understated. I mean, the whole song's a little creepy, right? Um lyrically and so I think they did a good job of not wanting it to get too poppy. I mean, they knew they had a hit. I think everyone knew they had a hit musically, but I, I think yeah, I think they they did an okay job of keeping it minimalist, which it is. I just always found it funny and weird that Sting was playing the stand-up bass in the video. Right, yeah. I mean, that was just for a show, right? Yeah, definitely. He's not really playing that goddamn thing, right? No, no. Yeah. yeah. Sting, I will say in, in retrospect, Sting is a better bass player than I thought he was when I was a kid. I thought he was just yeah. like a... But he's actually a pretty damn good bassist. If When you see the police live, which I did on their reunion... You do realize it's like this dude actually is a damn good bass player. He plays with his thumb. He's got a very unique style. He's good. Um, it's a little bit like Kip Winger. Like you watch the 17 video where he's he's not actually like playing his bass guitar. He's just sort of like having sex with it, basically. <laughs> um, and then you like hear Kip Winger play and you're like, oh, my God, he's great. Like, you know, so you kind of see sting during the videos or whatever. And you wonder if he like actually plays his instrument, but yeah, he's actually quite, quite a good bassist. And you know, a lot of the rhythmic stuff they do is can get a little bit complex and a lot of the reggae stuff, offbeat stuff, you know I mean? You gotta be pretty good to, to hang on that. So I think the next song is, is again, this album has it, it, the best of times or worst of times, right? Some of the best of times is certainly track two of side two. And that is King of pain. When the, when the album is good, or in this case, when it's exceptional, it's the little things. And this is where Hugh Pagum is so important in this, this piecing together of the album. Andy's little guitar during the, the chorus that's very powerful. Those staccato synthesizer keyboard notes that add the layer. You know, the, the little things when they were focused and creative and you know, really thinking deeply about how to enhance the songs. They're at their best. Even that last section there, Andy's chopping out dead notes and Stewart's, of course, on the bell on the ride. I mean, it's just, yeah, yes. hey, there's yes. so much stuff going on. So much. And, but all driven towards a, a, a composition that's, that's as, as good as anything that these three guys have ever been a part of. It's so good, man. It's so good. I mean, this is, this and the one that follows are just the moments where, I mean, you kind of nailed it. It's like the moments where you're just like, is this the best band that ever existed? I mean, this like really the, the four song run of, you know, synchronicity to every bit you take King of pain and the next one are, are just remarkable. Name a, name a four song run. That was that impactful. And in most cases, I don't love every breath you take, but that good. I mean, it'd be tough to, but yeah, King of Pain's a freaking heater. It's amazing. It so. sure is. That four song run concludes as we near the end of synchronicity with the amazing wrapped around your finger. Intuition. You will see it come to its fruition. 
Synchronicity 2, it, it might be the police's best song, but Wrapped Around Your Finger is my favorite police song. It's the one that, when I saw them live, was pulled off brilliantly. Mm-hmm. You know, it's Stuart was playing this really neat percussive thing on this percussion rack that he had. And then right at that key moment when it all comes together and he he runs back to the kit, starts playing, and they're actually kind of locked in. I mean, they're loose as always, but I just think this song is really powerful. I think it's really deep. I think it's 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 really memorable. What's interesting about Raptor Under Finger, that the guy I mentioned who I'm dedicating the episode to, my recently retired friend Clint, he hates wrapped around your finger really yeah he and i have had literally like half hour conversations yeah why wrapped around your finger is so incredible and he talks about how much he hates it i mean he literally despises it i think he'd probably tell you it's his least favorite song in the entire catalog whereas to me i just think it's this why clint why i know i i I mean why i wish this was a call-in show i'd have him call in right now yeah maybe he'll do a rebuttal but um (laughs) Yeah, great word depth. Um, this was a song that probably like college, I just sort of rediscovered, discovered, and it was like, God, this is good. And still, yeah, still so good. Such a unique song. The way they, the treatment and the detail. I don't know that another band could have pulled it off this well. It's a great composition, but the performance is really what makes it. And Stuart's doing some really creative, cool stuff on the drums and taking a song that could have been boring and making it anything but with all the intricacies. It's it's a phenomenal track. And it should have been the second to last song on the album and King of Pain should have been the, the closer, in my opinion. I think either one of those would have worked well, even if they were flip-flopped, I think it would have been great. So that's the end of synchronicity. It just ends right there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's do our assessment. Nine tracks and yeah, there you mm-hmm. go. Oh, wait, there's one more. So let's do it quickly. And that is the closing. Ugh, tea in the Sahara. With a joy you could not measure. They'd wait for him here. The same place every year. Beneath the sheltering sky. Across the desert he would fly. And and we all know what Sting is doing here. He's foreshadowing his solo career. I mean, yep. if I told you that that was off the soul cages, wouldn't you believe me? Oh yeah, that's a good point. It's a total Sting solo song, right? I mean, in every way, and it's really boring. And I wish they didn't close the album with it, because Raptor right Under Finger would have been such a powerful closer. Yeah. As would King of Pain. I think you're right. Kind of fitting for a. a- a record that struggled so much in the sequencing department to end with a song like this. I mean, it's just, it's got five of the best songs one can make. And then it just, the rest of it just falls off a cliff. You know, it just doesn't measure up. And and that was pretty common at the the time, but it was uncommon to not spread things out a little bit. (laughs) I think you make a great point on the sequencing. You know, I didn't plan to really cover that a lot and I'm glad that you brought it up because Properly sequenced, at least the album would have a certain rhythm to it. Yeah. So T, that is 1983's Synchronicity. So as always, T, did Synchronicity matter? Well, I'll quit whining about the track sequencing. I mean, you know, the commercial success of it was uh, very important. It is critically acclaimed. And I think, you know, you'd find that while a lot of people probably look back and say the same thing we do, that it's 
top heavy rather than spread out and balanced that there are still tracks on here that are undeniably great. So yeah, I mean, I think, I think it mattered. I think it was important. I think it holds up pretty well, honestly, you know, and a lot of that had to do with the production. The production of it is um, a big reason why it came off the way it does. I'm surprised Hugh didn't have more input for the band on how this should be structured and how this should be laid out in sequence. But when you have a, a band, like you said, that is so um, disjointed in terms of communication, in terms of, you know, trying to present something truly kind of putting three heads together rather than just everyone contributing in silos, that's sometimes the stuff that happens as a result. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's all part of it. But commercially extremely relevant in the early 80s was a big album for the industry and you know a a good one to still go back and listen to and assess and you know sometimes these records that are imperfect provide the best uh, amount of analysis and critical thought and conversation so it was a good choice what do you think did it matter does it hold up what do you think buddy i think that synchronicity is more beloved than it actually deserves to be. I I think that the album carries with it great imagery, this gigantic hit, one of the decade's biggest stars. But in the end, I think it contains five of the best songs one could ever make. And the rest of it sounds like a band who has already sort of cashed it in. So T, with that, let's do the final cut. Is Synchronicity on the turntable? Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust or is it headed to the for sale bin? Tia, where do you have? Yeah, I, you can't put it in the for sale bin. There's just too many strong moments. It's a dust collector. I think you have to have it in your collection. I have it in my collection. I mean, I have it along with Ghost in the Machine. I, I think you you said it well. I mean, part of that is you feel like you should have it as much as it is you can't wait to listen to it. I mean, I'm popping in Ghost in the Machine over this, and that's probably one that would be more in the territory of in the collection. This is collecting dust just because the execution of kind of the album structurally top to bottom just doesn't hit the mark, you know, for all the reasons we've discussed. So um, you can pick off these great songs, but are you really going to pop this in and you can't wait to get through Mother and Oh My God and walking your footsteps and whatever, and you can't wait for that closer tea in the Sahara. I mean, it's just, I don't think there's a compelling reason to put this on the turntable very often, but I do think it's worthy of being in the, I like having it in, in my collection. So therefore I'm going to go collecting dust. What do you got, bud? I have this album reluctantly in the collection. <laughs> you said it perfectly. I just agree with everything you just said. And again, I think it comes back to that. It's like the album as a brand. It's almost like those, the yellow, red, and blue created this brand identity for this album that goes beyond whether it's as good as, as everyone says it is. It just has to be there, right? You just need it. Ghost in the Machine needs to be with it, though. That I, I really see the relationship between these two, and I still think Ghost in the Machine is this band's undisputed masterpiece, not synchronicity. Though I do adore the high points of it, for sure. Oh, yeah. All right, T, let's end the way we always do about this time, and that is to see what is ringing in your head. In your head, in your head. T, three songs that are ringing in your head. Like we always do about this time. Uh, uh, In my head, here we go. What Time is Love, 3 a.m. Eternal, Last Train to Trans Central, 
justified in ancient and doctor in the TARDIS. What do you got, Nub? <laughs> Was that more than three? Yeah, those were all the those were the KLF songs. I love it. I absolutely love it. I love it. <laughs> what do you got, buddy? Uh, I got Led Zeppelin with a little misty mountain hop. Nice. Very good song off four. Very good song. Underrated Zeppelin song, maybe. The before mentioned Ian Thornley from Big Wreck, his solo song falling to pieces from the Thornley project is one that has been spinning lately for sure. And you mentioned Winger. You know, there's a new album from Winger. We didn't talk about it up top, mm-hmm. but uh, little Madeline been ringing this week yeah. from uh, the opening track from the first Winger album. Speaking of brilliant openers. Yeah, exactly. Well, T, we don't hate each other. And uh, that's a good thing. Good buddy. Unlike the band that we examined tonight, we love each other. It's good to have you back. It's very good to have you back. And I appreciate you after 134 days. Thanks for being, for being patient. And uh, what's going on with Toast Top 5? Are we going to have another one coming up? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, those will sprinkle in every so often, but it, it's good to have the big show back. Absolutely. It most certainly is. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. You could find us on our social media's outlets and uh, all over the webs and all sorts of things like that. Thanks again for tuning in. Take care of yourselves and take care of each other. And we will see you very soon on a future edition. It will be shorter than 134 days of Two Twins and an album. Two Twins and an album. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.